Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, we thank our witnesses for being here and all of our senators who I know care deeply about this issue. I'd like to thank you for being here to testify. Your insights and experience will be helpful as we begin to re-engage on this difficult topic. It's been well over a decade since 9-11, and there is an interest on the part of many members to revisit and refresh the authority we use to fight terrorism. In 2014, we saw the rise of ISIS, which seized territory in Iraq and Syria and has drawn thousands of foreign fighters and conducted enabled or inspired repeated attacks against the United States or our allies. As a result of these types of threat and others, multiple presidents have used the 2001 authorization for the use of military force by necessity to conduct hundreds of drone strikes around the world and to put American troops on the ground in multiple countries. However, there are a multitude of terrorist groups operating today that pose a direct threat to the United States and have lesser connection to the 9-11 attacks. Many have questioned whether the 2001 AUMF covers these groups. I have always believed that it's important for Congress to exercise its constitutional role to authorize the use of force and that our country is better off when Congress clearly authorize, authorizes the wars we fight. As a matter of fact, uh, we are approaching the day when an American soldier will deploy to combat under legal authority, authority that was passed before they were born. In 2014, I wrote, absent congressional action, the President will continue to operate under an outdated authorization, leaving the door open for future Presidents to claim undue and unbounded powers that will, over time, erode the balance of power fundamental to our constitutional system. Three years later, that statement remains true. It's also one that I think most members of Congress will agree with. But there are very real reasons why Congress has been unable to pass a new authority, and they are worth outlining. First and most importantly, the 2001 AUMF continues to provide our military with the authority they need to protect American citizens from very real threats. In the past year, American forces have been on the ground fighting terrorism in at least five countries. I believe that the President has the authority under the 2001 AUMF to take action against ISIS as the Obama administration repeatedly testified before this committee. The 2001 AUMF, while stretched, provides the ne a necessary legal authority for us to continue this fight. We should not risk its expiration without a replacement. Second, some members of Congress will use this debate for the singular purpose of imposing limitations on our president. It's just a fact. Others may refuse to limit a president at war in any way. That's a fact, and that's a wide gap to bridge. Finally, many argue that while passing an AUMF may not be a legal necessity, it's a moral one. They believe that Congress must fulfill its constitutional duty of authorizing war and show the men and women fighting around the world that their elected representatives support the war. I, too, share many of those uh, sentiments, but believe we must also guard against an outcome that could have exactly the opposite effect. While Congress, in fact, strongly supports the fight against ISIS and has repeatedly funded the effort the failure to bridge differences and to pass a new AUMF could create a false impression of disunity during a time of war. So with the backdrop of these challenges, I intend to conduct this debate in a way that I believe serves best our national interest. 
I hope that the administration will brief this committee to present their counterterrorism strategy and engage us constructively to ensure that any new authorization is appropriately tailored to serve the national interest and to win this fight. I also want to thank Senators Kane and Flake uh, for their tireless efforts. I want to thank Senator Young for presenting his own AUMF. And I want to thank Senator Menendez for uh, chairing a hearing where we attempted a markup uh, to do the same thing. Um, I appreciate all the work that's been done to develop bipartisan solutions. Again, I want to thank you for your presence today. It's most useful and helpful to us. And I look forward to your testimony and responses to our questions. And with that, I'd like to turn to our distinguished ranking member. And I want to thank all committee members. Um, I think what we did last week on the Senate floor um, through intense negotiations struck exactly the right balance and continued to uh, cause this committee in the United States Senate to uh, reclaim our rightful role in setting policies, foreign policies that are so important to our nation. I want to thank everybody for that and with that turn to Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I totally concur in your comments about the actions last week. I think it was the United States Senate, guided by this committee, uh, that did exactly what we needed to do in regards to the appropriate role of Congress. So I thank you very much. And I also thank you for holding this, this hearing. Um, much of what you said in your opening statement, I fully support and agree with. There are some differences that I will point out in my opening statement, but I do agree that this is one of the most important responsibilities that we have and one in which uh, hearings are very important for us to get this right. We can't run away from this responsibility, and I thank you for, for holding uh, this hearing. I also join you in thanking Senator Kane uh, and Senator Flake for their leadership for many years of pointing out that uh, Congress has a responsibility uh, to express itself on the use of military force and that the interpretations of uh, of both Democratic and Republican administrations on our 2001 authorizations uh, certainly go well beyond what Congress intended. And I thank them both for uh, their leadership. Senator Young, thank you for your leadership. And I uh, was, uh, the, 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 this committee took up this issue uh, under Senator Menendez's leadership. And we did not come to a, an agreement. Certainly the administration was not supportive of what we were trying to do, but we attempted uh, to come together uh, on that issue. In the wake of the horrific attacks against our country on September the 11th, 2001, Congress passed an AUMF targeting the perpetrators of those attacks and the Taliban who harbored them in Afghanistan. In 2002, Congress passed a second AUMF for the war in Iraq. When written, these AUMFs provided the President with sufficient latitude to target terrorist affiliates in order to better combat the threat of terrorism. Unfortunately, this latitude has been stretched far beyond what Congress intended. We are now 16 years beyond the 2001 AUMF, and yet it continues to be used as justification for a wide range of military operations. This includes military operations against terrorists in the Middle East, Africa, and elsewhere whose connections to Al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks are tenuous at best. Mr. Chairman, let me just read what the 2001 authorization said, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons who he determines planned, authorized, committed, 
or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September the 11th, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in an order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. It was clear to me when I voted for it that I was giving the President the necessary authority to take action against those who attacked our country on September the 11th. It's now being used well, well beyond what Congress intended. There's no question to me. We saw in the most recent use of this in regards to activities in Syria, certainly had nothing to do with the attack on our country on September the 11th. And that's true, as I said in my, initially, about the interpretations under both the Obama administration and now under the Trump administration. The Iraq AUMF is still used in part as justification for U.S. military operations in Iraq, 14 years past the U.S. invasion and long after the end of the Saddam Hussein regime. These AUMFs are now becoming mere authorities of convenience for presidents to conduct military activities anywhere in the world. This is no longer acceptable. To permit this situation to continue is a dereliction of con Congress's duty under the Constitution to direct and regulate the president's use of his commander-in-chief authority in activities of war. It is an invasion of our responsibility to the American people to ensure that the United States does not stumble into war or involve itself in ill-conceived wars that are not ours to fight and, or do not comport with interests, needs, values, and principles of our great nation. It is a failure of our commitment to our brave servicemen and women when we do not clearly define the battle and the objectives for which they must fight and risk their lives. This is especially the case now as the President has yet to tell us, or the American people, what his strategy is for defeating ISIL in Iraq and Syria, but also in other relevant theaters like Afghanistan, where violent extremist groups threaten U.S. interests. What we see instead is the President delegating his most vital responsibilities to others to decide what military operations are conducted and how many U.S. troops are to be committed to combat to combat in foreign countries. It is critical to the future security of the United States and our friends and allies that Congress provide the President with proper authorities to target and combat ISIL and its affiliates. In 2002, Iraq AUMF should be repealed, and the 2001-9-11 AUMF must be repealed and replaced with one that specifically targets ISIL and other terrorist groups. The authorities provided in the new AUMF must be tailored to allow the President to effectively go after direct threats to the United States, but also to avoid granting the President unilateral authority to engage in operations practically anywhere in the world. Mr. Chairman, let me just point out, you and I have both asked the administration to present us with their strategy. They have yet to do that. There's numerous examples of where we've asked them to present to us what they need. It's difficult for us to carry out our responsibility unless we know what the Commander-in-Chief needs as far as the use of military force in combating the, the ISIL forces. So it's going to be a challenge for us. As I said, I think we need to repeal the 2001 and replace it, but we need to know what the administration's strategy is, and they haven't done that. But we do know they're using the 2001 and 2002 authorizations well beyond what we ever intended. 
A particular concern to me is the need for a, a meaningful restrictions on deploying U.S. ground forces to combat ISIL. I do not believe significantly escalating our direct involvement in current combat operations is beneficial to actually solving the crisis instigated by ISIL. There is no easier or more assured way for the U.S. to unintentionally commit itself to a long-term military quagmire than this. As we know too well, once committed and then under attack, it becomes politically nearly impossible to withdraw those troops. Moreover, I'm not at all convinced that evolving threat from ISIL to us and to our friends and partners necessitates committing more of our brave men and women to ground combat operations. The need for significant combat military operations should diminish as ISIL's control over territory is diminished and the organization shifts the focus to terrorist attacks around the globe. It is at this point that the battle becomes one of assisting and building local partner militaries and improving counterterrorism civilian uh, security forces, law enforcement units, and intelligence, investigative, and judicial agencies, as well as combating ISIL's cyber activities. As we've heard in recent hearings, ISIL's global reach, the organization is moving from a physical caliphate to a virtual caliphate, and that is something is not something one fights with combat troops. For all these reasons, I believe this hearing is critically important, but it's equally important that we hear from the administration. Most fulsome statement. Um, we have a vote at 11 o'clock. We actually have two votes, and I think what we should do is just power through those and keep going. So if people could just uh, pay attention to when their time is up, uh, then we'll, we'll move back and forth and continue on. Um, our first witness is the Honorable John Bellinger III, former State Department legal advisor from 2005 to 2009. Before that, he was legal advisor to the National Security Council from 2001 to 2005. He's been before us uh, in the past. We thank you so much for being here. Our second witness is the Honorable Dr. Kathleen Hicks, Director of International Security Program at CSIS. Dr. Hicks previously serves at the Department of Defense during the Obama administration. We thank you also very much for being here. Um, and it, as you know, you can summarize your comments, if you will, in about five minutes, and we look forward to our questions. But again, appreciate your expertise, and if you just begin in the order, introduce. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin. Uh, I agree with your comments at the outset, and it's a privilege for me to be back before this distinguished committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I want to especially commend you for your efforts to reach a consensus on a new authorization against ISIS, and I applaud the very valuable contributions for Senator Kane and Senator Flake, and I know, Senator Kane, you've been at this for quite some period of time. It's a privilege to meet with you, uh, and Senator Young as well uh, for your recent contribution. Uh, thank you. Uh, as you heard, I served as the legal advisor for the National Security Council in the first term of the Bush administration and the State Department legal advisor in the second term. I was in the White House Situation Room on 9-11, uh, and I was involved in the drafting of both the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs. Uh, and for my sins, I then spent the next eight years engaged in almost uh, daily discussions on the legal issues relating to the use of military force, including detention uh, arising under both AUMFs. Sixteen years after the enactment of the 2001 AUMF and three years after the beginning of the U.S. conflict with ISIS, Congress should repeal the outdated 2001 AUMF and replace it with a comprehensive new AUMF that authorizes the use of force with appropriate limitations against named terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda, 
the Taliban, ISIS, and associated groups. Congress should also repeal the 2002 AUMF, which is no longer necessary. An updated AUMF is legally necessary to ensure that our military has clear authorization from Congress to use force against terrorist groups engaged in hostilities against the United States and to ensure that U.S. detention operations withstand legal challenges in U.S. courts. An updated AUMF should remove the limitation in the 2001 AUMF to organizations that committed the 9-11 attacks. It is increasingly difficult, and I have been there, to demonstrate that new terrorist groups that have emerged in the last few years are associated with al-Qaeda. It is not clear that the 2001 AUMF authorizes the use of force against ISIS because ISIS did not exist, at least in its current form in 2001, and was not the group that committed the 9-11 attacks. A new AUMF that specifically authorizes the use of force against ISIS would also provide a clearer legal basis for detention of members of ISIS. An updated AUMF should authorize the president to use all necessary force against named terrorist groups and associated organizations that have attacked or have an intention to attack the United States or U.S. persons. The AUMF should include a list of specific groups, which would presently include at least the Taliban, al-Qaeda, and ISIS, and may include other named groups but allow the president to use force against additional organizations if he notifies Congress that he has determined that the additional organizations are associated with the named organizations and are engaged in hostilities or plan to engage in hostilities against the United States. In my view, a new AUMF should not be limited geographically to certain countries. Even if a new AUMF does not limit the use of force to certain countries, the United States is still required by international law to limit its use of force in or against other countries. As a purely legal matter, I would oppose a sunset provision. A sunset creates legal uncertainty for the president and the military. However, I can certainly understand that some kind of a sunset or review provision may be politically necessary to achieve consensus on a new AUMF. I would oppose provisions in a new AUMF that would seek to restrict or micromanage the use of force by the president and the military, such as an absolute prohibition on ground combat operations. If a limitation is necessary, I would support a clearer prohibition, such as this authorization does not include authorization for the ground invasion or occupation of any sovereign country or part thereof without further congressional authorization. A new AUMF might include provisions providing certain procedural protections for the use of lethal force against Americans who join terrorist groups. Authorizing uh, might also authorize but also provide procedural safeguards for detention of terror suspects captured by the military outside the United States and certain congressional reporting requirements. Finally, Congress should also make it a priority to revise and update the War Powers Resolution, which the National War Powers Commission, which was a bipartisan commission chaired by former Secretaries of State Baker and Warren Christopher, called impractical and ineffective, and I applaud the War Powers Consultation Act uh, of 2014, which was drafted by Senators McCain and Kane to implement the recommendations of the commission. Members of Congress have understandable concerns about approving a broad new authorization and extending what many view as a forever war. 
However, I am convinced that Congress can come together to agree on a new AUMF that provides our military forces the clear legislative authorization and congressional support they need to defend the United States against Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other terrorist groups, rather than continuing to rely on a 16-year-old authorization. Thank you for inviting me here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, I appreciate the opportunity to testify before you today. The subject of this hearing, authorization for the use of military force, is a critical one that fails to deserve the uh, fails to receive the attention that it deserves. Open deliberations over the decision to use military force have been foundational to our democracy since its establishment. I will focus my testimony today on the imperative for a new authorization for counterterrorism operations, the essential constitutional role Congress must play in exercising its war powers through passage of a new AUMF, and the factors Congress should consider in developing an effective provision. I approach this issue not as a lawyer, but as a former defense policy maker, implementer, and evaluator, including on decisions involving the use of U.S. military forces in counterterrorism under the existing AUMFs. The United States faces an array of threats from violent extremist groups that necessitate counterterrorism operation in disparate parts of the world. Current U.S. counterterrorism activities generally operate under provisions of the 2001 AUMF, which was intended to sanction force against the individuals, groups, and states involved in the planning and execution of the September 11 attacks. To create a legal justification for U.S. military action taken against terrorist groups that have emerged since 9-11, notably including the Islamic State and al-Shabaab, the executive branch has relied on an ever-expanding interpretation of the category of al-Qaeda-associated forces provided for under the 2001 AUMF. Relying on a 16-year-old authorization focused on countering core al-Qaeda for current or potential operations against the Islamic State and other emergent terrorist threats jeopardizes our nation's principled belief in the rule of law and thereby risks the legitimacy of the institutions designed to create, carry out, and enforce such laws. Alongside the courts, the United States Congress can serve as a critical safeguard against any perceived attempts to fundamentally alter the quality of civilian control of the military in this country. The path to reviving the vigorous exercise of civilian control through congressional war powers should start by repealing and replacing the 2001 AUMF. Civilian control of the military is not just an end unto itself. Military force must be tied to policy objectives if it is to succeed. The 16-year reliance on the 2001 AUMF, the longest standing congressional authorization for the use of force in American history, suggests a failure on the part of the nation's political leaders to bear their strategic responsibility. A robust congressional role in use of force decisions can spur consideration of policy alternatives, raise important strategic considerations, and build the public support necessary for a sustainable national security strategy. It strengthens our democracy and our legitimacy. Most members of Congress were elected after the 2001 AUMF and have not been party to a serious discussion on AUMF. Consequently, the American public has not had an opportunity to witness and participate in an open debate over the nation's approach to authorizing force in support of its counterterrorism objectives in some time. The administration's submission of a strategy to defeat ISIS as required by the FY 2017 Omnibus Appropriations Bill will be critical for uh, uh, setting the stage for that public debate. What is our goal? How should we go about accomplishing it? What's the role of U.S. military force alongside that of other national and international actors and tools? 
Without an honest and frank national discourse on our strategy, we run the risk of the executive branch's activities separating not only from the legal basis upon which its use of force rests, but also a disconnect between the will of the people and the military actions pursued by its duly elected government. To be effective, AUMF should strike an appropriate balance between the National Command Authority's ability to rapidly respond to emergent national security threats and Congress's ability to exercise appropriate oversight. Specifically, Congress should ensure any AUMF it considers address key issues in the following areas. Targeted entities, geographical limitations, special U.S. military force limitations such as regarding combat roles, reporting requirements, associated detention issues, and sunset provisions. Stakeholders across the political spectrum rightly support a new AUMF to create legal clarity and political legitimacy for the use of American military force. The range of current proposals originating from the Senate and House offer viable pathways for repealing and replacing the 2001 AUMF and repealing the 2002 AUMF. The time is now ripe for reconsideration of the 2001 AUMF and discussion of congressional war powers. Thank you in particular for your efforts to draw attention to this matter and for calling this hearing today. I have walked through in my written statement my views on the various issues I referenced. I will simply say uh, uh, Mr. Bellinger and I agree on many issues. There are some areas of some disagreement, but I think most importantly we agree that there is an imperative to get to a solution on a new AUMF and move forward. Thank you very much, and I'm open to your questions. Thank you both. I'm going to uh, reserve my time for interjections. Uh, it's my understanding the minority party uh, is not agreeing for us to go past noon. I understand what, you know, the health care issue is. There's some bunking up that's occurring. So we're going to remain five minutes strict. Please don't ask questions that end at five minutes and, and uh, move on. And I really hate it. This is a serious discussion, a serious hearing, and we may need to reconvene, but uh, we thank you both for being here with that, Senator Cardin. Mr. Chairman, again, I agree with you. I think this subject needs um, the open hearings in our committee, so I, I join you in uh, finding ways that we can make sure we can have the, uh, ample time for, the, for this debate. So I just want to follow up on both of you. I think both of you have had a lot of agreement. Uh, after the attack on September uh, 9-11, all of us wanted to take action against those who caused that tragedy. And we had the vote in Congress. And we wanted to give the president maximum discretion on how to go against the perpetrators of that attack. So we passed an authorization for the use of military force. It wasn't terribly controversial, but it did contain a restriction. It was against those who attacked us on 9-11. And now we see that authorization being used against groups that weren't in existence on 9-11. So uh, does, does either one of you think that Congress has authorized the use of our military force against the Assad regime in Syria? I hope that's a yes or no answer. <laughs> I, I certainly don't think that's what Congress intended 16 years ago. Right. Agree, certainly not under the two AUMFs in discussion. And of course, on June 18th, U.S. forces shot down an armed regime fighter jet in northern Syria. So. And then we could get into whether we've authorized the use of military force against the terrorist groups, ISIL, or ISIS, which I don't believe we have authorized, and yet I am in support of America pursuing these terrorists. But I don't believe Congress has authorized force. So I, I, I guess my first concern is when you want to give the president maximum authority, looking at what 
three previous administrations, one current and two previous administrations have used our authorization. Don't we have to be particularly concerned on how we define this so it's not misused by future administrations? Senator, I, I agree with all of what you've just said, and I think you know, the, the challenge is going to be to try to get that tailored authorization uh, that authorizes the use of force against the groups that we're actually fighting uh, so that we have congressional support uh, but that does have the appropriate limitations. It's, and rather than continue to le let successive presidents stretch this authorization that was used for a particular purpose, this is actually a time when some appropriate limitations that all could agree on could be added. It has been stretched beyond uh, the recognition of what was passed in 2001. I agree. And Dr. Hicks, I want to let you answer the next question, because this is the dilemma we face. You have an administration who says, look, I'm just using President Obama's interpretation. I can do pretty much anything I want to do. So why should I bother even dealing with Congress? Because I have all the authorization I need. I agree with you that Congress has a responsibility to be clear on its authorization and to repeal the 2001 and replace it. How do we do that when we don't know what the president wants to use as far as military force? He hasn't come to us. I do, as I said in my testimony, I do think uh, having that dialogue and certainly in the form of a strategy from the administration is central to understanding the right set of tools for But they're not having it with us. I'm sorry? The administration's not having that dialogue with Correct. Them. No, I'm, a, I'm in complete agreement with you. It has been, you all have passed uh, a requirement for them to submit that. It has not come in. That said, I think you can still move forward on an AUMF. It may not be the AUMF they ultimately desire, but the burden is on them then to come forward with their strategy. So you believe the fact that we have an authorization out there that's being misused is more important for us to clarify than knowing exactly what the administration wants, because normally Congress doesn't pass an AUMF unless the commander-in-chief wants an AUMF. Well, I, you do have the administration, certainly from the Defense Department, indicating they want a new AUMF, just as the Obama administration, in theory, wanted a new AUMF as well. I think the issue here is, is uh, there is a major policy and strategic issue, as I said, about where we go on the counter-ISIS campaign, let alone where we go on counterterrorism more generally. Uh, that said, and that issue is not going to go away in and of itself by passage of a new AUMF. But by the same token, you need a new AUMF, or they're just going to continue to act under the And I think both of you agree we should repeal both 01 and 02, should be repe replaced. I understand with a replacement, but both should be repealed, and you understand the need for a sunset or review process, which I appreciate both of your testimonies. Thank you. You are a great example to all. Senator Flake. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to thank the chairman and the ranking member for having this hearing and for uh, not just in this area, but in all areas, looking to reassert the, the, this committee and uh, our proper constitutional role uh, with regard to foreign policy. And uh, nowhere is that more needed, in my view, than, uh, than in this area. Um, the Constitution gives Congress uh, the authority to declare war. And if we're not going to declare formal war, uh, if we're going to move forward on the basis of uh, an AUMF, then certainly Congress needs to be more involved. And uh, I think that we've uh, struck myself and Senator Kane a pretty decent balance here in terms of the, the interests of the committee and, and its members. 
and, and I hope that we can move forward on that basis. I just wanted to address a few of the topics, but say as well, I think that uh, to, to work on the basis of a 16-year-old AUMF is simply not tenable. Um, our allies need to know where we are. Our adversaries need to know where we are, that we speak with one voice. Our troops in the field need to know that we speak with one voice. Uh, not having a current AUMF allows Congress, uh, lets us off the hook, it allows us to criticize the administration of either party, um, and uh, when we should be involved and have skin in the game, as it were. Uh, and I'd really like, uh, Mr. Bellinger, your thoughts, and I, I appreciate your thoughts on a sunset in an ideal world. I think you shouldn't have a sunset. You noted we didn't have a sunset uh, with regard to World War II. I would note that uh, that was against, you know, sovereign government where, you know, unconditional surrender is the only acceptable outcome. Uh, here, when you're dealing with non-state actors, it's not yeah. quite as clear-cut. And, and I would note that uh, in the House, when we voted on the AUMF in 2001, it was a much different body with different members. 300 members who are in the House today did not vote on the 2001 AOMF. More than 300 members of the House of Representatives. Here in the Senate, I don't know how many senators voted on the 2001 AOMF? Uh, 23. So three-quarters of this body has not voted on an AOMF. And, and uh, when you have a situation like that, we are not speaking with one voice. It, uh, we are... Uh, you know, let off the hook. Um, we can criticize the administration. They can criticize us. We need to be together on matters of foreign policy of this importance. And so that's why I'm so pleased that uh, we're moving ahead on this. Can you uh, make, give some thoughts on that with regard to a sunset? Is it a little different situation when you're dealing with, uh, you know, nation states as opposed to non-state act actors? Well, thank you, Senator. I, I completely agree with all of your remarks, both on the, the, the overall philosophy and particularly the need to back our armed forces. You know, as all of you know, I think all 535 members say you know, we completely back our military. We want to give them the resources they need. But one of the resources is legal resources, legal backing. Uh, I, as a lawyer, want our troops to have the legal authorization that they need. Uh, and the law, current law, is, is, is unclear now as to whether the fight that is being fought is actually legally backed by Congress. And if it actually comes to detention and we start detaining members of ISIS, uh, members of ISIS, if they have an opportunity to get into court, are certainly going to say that it's not authorized by Congress. Perhaps the, the president will fall back on his Article II powers, but there are real practical concerns about this stretch to have the AUMF uh, covering ISIS. On the sunset, Yes, as a legal matter, you know, no administration lawyer is going to go in and propose, please end my authority in three years or five years. It just creates legal uncertainty for commanders. Uh, as I said in my written testimony, we would never have done that in World War II to say, well, we're, we're declaring war, but only for a year, and then we'll revisit it in a period of time. And this is a serious threat. Uh, so to have Congress tell the military that we're only in it for a year or a couple of years is legally problematic. But that's from a legal perspective. From a political perspective, I certainly understand you know, members of Congress, the American people have said, well, 
that last AUMF lasted for 16 years and got stretched beyond all sorts of things, so this time I'd like to have a sunset. I think that is a politically reasonable thing for you to agree on. I just say as a lawyer, one would not want to go in asking for a sunset. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Another great example. Senator Coons. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker. Thank you, Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you to the witnesses. Uh, and thank you to Senators Flake and Kane uh, for their hard work in framing uh, what we are debating and discussing today and for the committee as a whole for their engagement on this. I think this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate how the Senate can work well together in an important and difficult uh, constitutional moment. Uh, when the President sends American troops into harm's way, those men and women, their families, and the American people deserve clear authorization from Congress, a robust debate in Congress, a strategy that outlines the path to success, and at the moment, I'm concerned we have none of those three. President Trump has not yet presented to us a strategy for success in Afghanistan and Syria. We have taken important steps on a bipartisan basis in this committee, and I'm encouraged to see we're having this hearing today and that there is more than not agreement between our witnesses. But I'll note the absence of an administration witness. The decision to send Americans off to fight in battle deserves our thoughtful consideration and bipartisan effort to produce a clear path forward. This isn't a partisan issue. We have more than 8,000 American troops deployed in Afghanistan, and there are reports several thousand more may soon be deployed. We have hundreds of American troops in Syria who have recently been taking fire from both ISIS and Assad forces in one of the most dangerous and complicated battle spaces on Earth. I want them to succeed. We all want them to succeed. But what does success look like? How do we define success? That requires a strategy. What are the national interests we are defending and advancing on these battlefields? We have to have a conversation between the branches, executive and legislative, about what our goals are in Afghanistan and Syria and what it will take to achieve them. Now, particularly when it comes to our military, I'm not here to criticize the president or disagree with my colleagues across the aisle. I'm here to work with them so that we can do our best to provide our troops with the strategy, the resources, and the support they need. Um, so if I might, um, I am uh, encouraged that our witnesses both largely agree. Um, would you take the time I have left to talk to what are the strengths of the AUMF proposed by Senators Flake and Kane, and what do you see as the areas that might require amendment or improvement? I am broadly supportive and encouraged uh, by what's been framed and what's been presented. We do have a couple areas of, of disagreement, um, but I, again, as you point out, Senator Coons, we, we, we agree on many of these areas. I, I think the one thing I would take a moment to comment on is I think Kinflake is a great uh, beginning of that conversation in pretty much every area I talked about. Two areas that are not covered under it that need discussion, not necessarily ultimately inclusion, but discussion, are the detention implications. Um, and then the second is, is there a special attention to be paid to uh, forces used in a combat role? Um, and I would say Representative Schiff's uh, bill in the House, which uh, speaks to the issue of ground combat forces and essentially as soon as possible notification. It's not an exclusion or a limitation, but a notification procedure that is faster for use of forces, in, the, in his case, for ground forces in a combat role, I think is an appropriate balance of giving absolute operational flexibility to the commanders um, in the executive branch, while at the same time allowing the fastest possible dialogue to begin uh, with Congress. I'll stop there. Thank you, Kathy.
and I'll just, uh, Senator, uh, focus on two things. And again, I, th I thank Senators uh, Kane and Flake for really working incredibly hard on this. And I know you've listened to must be hundreds of people to, to get what the concerns are and try to get it right. I, I guess I'd say one thing is a nice to have and one I think I would try to fix. The try to fix is the uh, limitation on associated forces to the, uh, having to be part of al-Qaeda uh, I'd at least like to talk to you all some more about that. I know you must have gotten that after a lot of thought. We all know that, that one of the top two or three hardest things is defining the associated forces so that Congress is not authorizing use of force against associates of affiliates of people who say nice things about al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, we want it to be either al-Qaeda, groups that are fighting along with them, uh, uh, and keep it narrow. Um, uh, the part, uh, to define it uh, associated as part of al-Qaeda seems to me to be a little bit too tight in that there may be groups that are using the terminology that most administrations have used of co-belligerency. You have a different group that is fighting alongside and allied with al-Qaeda, but they really are a different group uh, and they are not part of al-Qaeda or ISIS. So that is one thing uh, that I would be uh, that's a little bit too tight. I know you want to keep this tight. Uh, and I do think that, that association, association can't be just a, a group that shares the ideology but is writing white papers somewhere. It's got to be a group that is, in fact, fighting along with uh, al-Qaeda in some way. So I think that idea thank of co-belligerency is important. Th thank you both for your testimony. I yep. appreciate the opportunity to get your input today. Senator Young. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Well, first, I, I want to thank our chairman for his leadership in convening uh, this uh, panel about this important issue. Uh, I also want to thank my fellow members, uh, Kane and Flake, for their longstanding leadership on, on this matter. Mr. Bellinger, Dr. Hicks, you've each spoken to the importance of and uh, the appropriateness of uh, uh, an AUMF, uh, not just debating it, but ultimately Congress passing an AUMF focused on ISIS. Allow me to flip this issue on its head uh, for a moment and, and ask a question of you uh, in this way. If in one year, two years, God forbid five years, uh, U.S. forces remain engaged in hostilities against ISIS and Congress still has not passed an AUMF, why do you believe the, the average American, the rank-and-file Hoosier, should be concerned? I'll say one thing legally and one thing more generally. Legally, and I know this is of particular interest to you and also answers your question, Senator Coons, is that it's not clear about detention authority. If we do start detaining members of ISIS under this old 2001 AUMF, there really is potential legal infirmity. And so Congress has not acted to provide clear authority to detain members of ISIS. More generally, I would say to the American people, you should be concerned that our Congress, while saying that they are backing the military, is not giving the military the legal support that they need. Congress does not have your backs legally. Let me just add to that that we're a nation of laws, and if we lose that, um, I don't know what we stand for. I don't know why Americans should believe in the institutions um, you know, that they've elected and that they support through the courts, um, and I think that's fundamentally a problem for American democracy. 
Well, so um, there's some overlap between my concerns and, and yours. I, of course, am concerned about our constitutional prerogatives, our obligations, our duties uh, as elected representatives of, of our respective constituencies. And uh, this is not a power, a war-making power that can be delegated uh, to the executive branch. Uh, we can't outsource our responsibilities, as difficult as it might be to come to terms on, on some of these issues. And I do indeed believe uh, that we can find uh, some, some principled compromises in, in passing AUMF. As, as a former Marine Corps officer, I, I perhaps am, am, am more sensitive, maybe not, but uh, I am certainly very sensitive to the fact that uh, we don't want to leave our troops who are in the field in the lurch. They do need to know that the American people, through their elected representatives, have their backs. And I think even having a debate on this issue shines a bright light on the sacrifices they're making and on the propriety or, or impropriety of our involvement in different areas. So that's a, another point. And lastly, um, I believe that uh, this new AUMF would, would address, address the concerns. Mr. Bellinger, you've uh, mentioned uh, several times throughout this hearing about detention authority. Um, I was a Marine Corps intelligence officer. I understand the importance of, of eliciting intelligence, human intelligence, uh, from detainees and from other sources. Uh, it helps save lives on the battlefield and here at the homeland. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not clear that under current authorities that can be done. So um, I intend to uh, build on, on my efforts, having done the best I could to draft an AUMF, uh, and I am prepared to make principled compromises with other members of this committee, other members of Congress as we move forward, uh, so that we can formulate an, an AUMF that can pass this committee and pass out of, of the United States Senate. With respect to the authorization to detain, um, I know it's been mentioned time and again, but uh, I want it to be reinforced. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Bellinger, do you believe specifically authorizing the detention of terror suspects captured by the military outside of the U.S. Uh, would be legally helpful? You've already said yes. Why is this so important? The courts have held that the words all appropriate necessary force do include the authority to detain. So the courts have said that. Uh, but it would be more helpful if Congress were to specifically say that, and particularly with respect to ISIS. So if we don't, uh, there will be an invocation of, 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 of habeas. There will be a habeas petition filed. Is, is, is that correct? Uh, can't we predictably say that that will happen uh, by a, from a number of these detainees based on recent history? Potentially, yes. Right now they have the right to habeas if they're in Guantanamo. If they're held somewhere else in, uh, in Iraq or elsewhere, it's not clear they would have the right to habeas. So in my Senate Joint Resolution 31, the AUMF I've put together, it does make crystal clear uh, that this is within the authorities we have. Then we can get the combatants off the battlefield. We can be eliciting intelligence from them. And uh, I would hope this would be part of a future AUMF. Thank you. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you so much. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding the hearing. Yeah. I hope we can use it uh, as a catalyst for this body to take up its constitutional responsibility of declaring war and guiding the civilians who must ultimately make the most consequential decision of sending America's sons and daughters uh, into battle. Uh, in 2014, I authored a specific authorization for the use of military force to combat the Islamic State. As chairman at the time, we worked extensively with the executive branch as it developed and critically sought congressional support of the authorities it believed it needed to confront growing threats against the United States and our strategic in interests. 
We work closely with Republicans on the committee as well to ensure that we exercise the most solemn responsibility we have, which is sending young men and women onto the battlefield to protect and defend the United States. And we did so with a deep understanding and clear guidance of what we wanted to do. We may not have all come to an agreement as to all the elements of it, but there was a sincere effort. I was disappointed that the Senate uh, as a whole and the House failed to take up the legislation, and failing to deliver is nothing short of an abrogation of constitutional duty. Uh, with this president quietly delegating authorities to the Secretary of Defense and commanders of the field, uh, I think it's critical that this committee and the Congress as a whole embrace our oversight duties. We have had nine Americans killed in combat missions this year. Campaigns have ramped up. I read about a surge in Afghanistan, uh, and I continually have a sense, or I don't have a sense of what the totality of the strategy uh, is. So as Congress considers a new AUMF, um, Ms. Hicks, how should we consider what some have termed the President's delegation of civilian control uh, to the military itself? Should and how can Congress effectively weigh in when the civilians who are supposed to be making critical decisions, including where to send troops and how many of them, have delegated that authority to the entities of which they are supposed to be in control of? I think this is an a very important issue uh, to be raising, so I appreciate you asking the question. Um, there, there is always a debate to be had over the degree to which the president should be delegating um, authority down into, in this case, the Defense Department. Um, I, I think you are well aware that there was a view from the military, broadly speaking, that the last administration held that too tightly. I think the view of most of us who look at the defense community in a pretty bipartisan way think we're going very much the opposite direction, so it's swinging as a pendulum. Um, so the, the, the good news, I guess, is that there is another civilian in the chain of command, and he's the Secretary of Defense. And uh, together with the President, he constitutes the National Command Authority. And he should be held responsible for decisions on use of force, and so should the president, obviously. Um, so there is a civilian in the chain uh, that remains, but it's one. Um, and I think the, uh, the, what Congress can do, obviously, is AUMF, war powers uh, enforcement, the power of the purse. And I would just add, for this committee in particular, building up or maintaining or sustaining or protecting the other tools of national power that kind of fall out through that kind of decision when it moves from the president down directly into the Defense Department. Even the most enlightened of secretaries of defense is going to be looking at this issue set through a military lens. That's his job. Um, what you lose in that is any consideration or large consideration of diplomacy, economic tools, development, et cetera, that might be appropriate to the issue at hand. So mm. anything you can do as authorizers in that space, I think, would be welcome. I appreciate that. I think it makes all the more compelling case for an AUMF to actually be passed. Let me ask you both this. Since 9-11, we have grappled with effectively confronting threats that are non-state actors, which almost by definition makes the geographic applicability of any authorization a complicated subject, and one that you both touched on in your testimonies. Given the nature of the threats, how do we balance between giving our leaders the ability to target threats who move between borders and not allowing this mission to creep to operating in every country in the world? For example, Islamic State. Uh, some claim to be part of the uh, Islamic State but operating on an ally country like the United Kingdom. How do, how do we deal with that issue? 
I'll take a first stab. I mean, I, I completely understand the concern that one does, particularly after the 2001 AUF, that one doesn't want to be authorizing the use of force all around the world. Our, my European colleagues, when I used to talk to them, were always worried that when we said there was a global war that we were going to go use force in London or Germany or elsewhere, and I had to assure them that no, that we weren't. Uh, I think, and that reason is that international law limits our use of force. So I don't think a domestic authorization should limit the use of force against groups to certain countries. The authorization is against the groups. Uh, I think you could have a sense of the Senate that says we think we should be limited to these seven countries, but I wouldn't specifically say force can only be used in these countries because, as you say, Senator, the groups move. But again, international law limits where the United States can use force to those countries that have either consented to the use of force or are unwilling or unable to prevent a threat from their country. But I, I would not say force can only be used in these seven countries. Thank you. I know you missed my riveting opening comments, but I did thank you for your leadership in 2014 on this topic. Senator Isaacson. Chairman, I got a full briefing on your opening comments. Thank you, so. sir. Thank you. You know, Dr. Hicks, when you make your testimony and you use the words repeal and replace, you used it at a time that that used to be two verbs that connotated action. Now it's two verbs hooked together that connotate difficulty in the Congress of the United States in terms of coming to a resolution, which begs my question. On the non-state actors referred to by Mr. Menendez, Senator Menendez and others, uh, Senator Young, in drafting this AUMF, should we be specific in not naming names in terms of group names or, or people that we're attacking, but rather connotating the actions of groups so we don't find ourselves handicapped by the limitations that the 201 AUMF limits us to today because it refers to 9-11 partners? I'll take a first cut at that. I do think you have to specify groups. I think the problem, as has been evident even in this discussion today and certainly in the last 16 years, is this thorny issue of associated forces. Um, and then the process for expanding, if you will, the interpretation of associated forces and then the ability to review and renew, which I consider a sunset clause being a, an essential element of for Congress to adapt just as the threat may adapt. Um, so I think what Kane Flake has done successfully is put a pathway in there where it names the forces, which I think is an appropriate limitation, um, but provides a process by which the executive branch can come forward with groups that they would like to have added, if you will, uh, to the list. Um, and obviously they have to be able to defend the associated forces under the other criteria that are in the, would be in the provision specifically relating, for example, to threats directly to the United States um, and its, its forces and other personnel. Uh, Senator, I agree, with, uh, I agree with that. I think the, uh, it's important to have a list of named groups that you're authorizing the use of force for, but since these groups can morph and there can be new groups, that it is important for the president to be able to add groups but we're not authorizing them against groups that are completely unassociated that it might come up. That would require a new authorization. But you should authorize use of force against groups that are associated and really co-belligerents engaged in hostilities with uh, the, the main groups, uh, al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, uh, that you're authorizing the use of force against. So basically give yourself some flexibility to be more adroit and quicker in terms of a declaration against another group and tying yourselves like we have for the last 17 years to the 2001 attacks, or 16 years, is that right? Precisely. Well, I would just point out that I think Congress should be involved. I think a new AMUF does make a lot of difference, but I hope when we get into a robust debate, it'll be a robust debate with an end point and a decision, 
because inaction by a Congress that's trying to write an AUMF is worse than no action at all. Thank you very much for your attendance today. Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much, Chairman Corker. And, and let me um, just uh, say that last week with what we did, the, the um, Russia-Iran sanctions, what we did on the floor, what we did on the committee and all the negotiations, I, I think that was a good example of what we need to do here in terms of reasserting uh, the authority of this committee and reasserting the Congress into uh, into these very important issues, especially the war-making authority, which, which uh, for too long, and I think both of you have uh, uh, said that, that we, we haven't stepped up. We haven't pushed uh, uh, to do our constitutional duty. And, and um, so I want to thank you both for your um, testimony so far. Um, I, um, like some of my colleagues, I was in Congress in 2001. And I voted for the 9-11 AUMF to authorize military action against Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and their allies, including the Taliban. Um, I would have never imagined uh, that vote supporting U.S. troops in Syria in 2017 in engagements with the Assad regime. And I don't think anyone else did either. And, and we have this, as we're speaking, I think a, a, we have another drone being shot down. Uh, but we had this this uh, uh, contact with a with a Syrian jet. Uh, how do you all view the the and I, Mr. Bellinger, I'd like you to the legality of doing that under these current circumstances when we're in uh, when we're in Syria without an authorization. Uh, so thank you, Senator. Uh, on Syria, I, I have to say. Just on the law, I was puzzled about the statements coming out of the Pentagon that the shootdown was authorized by the 2001 AUMF, uh, and I hope that they will clarify that. I, I think the president may well have Article II authority constitutionally. I don't know all the facts, but he may have decided it was in our national interest to shoot down the plane. But I, I, it's hard for me to see that Congress, by authorizing the use of force against organizations and nations and groups that committed the 9-11 attacks authorized the use of force uh, against Syria. So you would say questionable legality at this point, if not outright? Well, well, the president may well have constitutional authority. He may well, he has broad constitutional authority to use force that's in our interest, and it right. may well have been in our interest. But it's harder for me to see that Syria was one of the nations that committed the 9-11 attacks or is associated with them or is a co-belligerent with them. Please. I would just like to add, I, 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 the other piece of this that's in, uh, clear in Mr. Bellinger's answer is the lack of transparency. Even going back to the strike against uh, Assad, uh, against the air base related to chemical weapons use, I don't think we've ever seen, at least I'm not aware of, a legal justification for that. It, it may well be defensible, but we haven't seen any legal basis. I think Congress should be insisting on seeing these war power filings, uh, you know, in whatever means possible to get the legal basis that is being used. There may be a very defensible way they're framing it, but we wouldn't know because they were not being told. The, the, um, it, Ms. Hicks, on the issue of a sunset, I didn't hear you say what your um, position was on that because I wanted to ask a question on that. I, yes, I believe in a sunset. I think okay. it's an appropriate uh, way in which to ensure that you're adapting with the threat and keeping Congress and thus the public engaged in the discourse over use of force. So that's one of the issues you two disagree on in, in some respect, I would think. 
is on the sunset. And let me just just uh, add a question to this. The, I, I've, when we've considered uh, these uh, authorizations of force, I've added sunset provisions. And the reason for doing that is looking at the history of where we are today. I mean, what in fact has happened is is Congress hasn't stayed engaged. And so one of the ways for Congress to be engaged is you say, you know, you're going to come back and look at this in three years, or you're going to come back and look in two years. And so um, how, how can you force that engagement within an agreement without having some kind of sunset? That's really my, my question, and, and, uh, and you two may, may uh, have a little bit of disagreement on that, and I only have 30 seconds trying to... So you only have 30 seconds. <laughs> I, I, I'll just say, you know, I come at the center as an executive branch lawyer where I'm sure you can understand the, the president and the military is not going to ask for a sunset on its authorities, say, please sunset my authorities. Uh, but from a political perspective, particularly over the last 16 years, I completely understand that one might want to have a sunset. If I were in your position, would I vote for a sunset? If that were the way to get consensus, I might well do that. If I were writing the legislation as a lawyer who wants to not have uncertainty for my troops, I would not put in a sunset. But I think you can see the difference there. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Senator uh, Senator Paul. Before you do that, I'm going to take the chair's prerogative here. One of the things is there's always a sunset annually because obviously Congress can defund or put language in the authorization, but that has not been particularly effective in recent years, but it's, but it's always there. Senator Paul. Madison wrote that the executive branch is the branch most prone to war, therefore the Constitution with studied care granted that power or vested that power in the legislature. In no way did they argue that Article II was unlimited authority to commence, initiate, or uh, engage in war at all. In fact, most of the Founding Fathers would disagree with you on saying that Article II gives the President power to commence in war. To defend the country under imminent attack, to execute the war once the war is initiated. The initiation of war is congressional duty, not, not the President's at all. Even the War Powers Act, a couple centuries later, nobody reports this. It has a reporting requirement in there, but it also says in another section that this is a reporting requirement for things that are either imminent attack or authorized war. There's nothing in the War Powers Act about unauthorized war because we're not supposed to be doing it. So I agree completely with the authors of this that we should be doing something. I applaud their motives. I don't question their motives. But I do doubt that this will change any of our military interventions as to what we are doing. I want to know, are we going to limit the president's power? Are we going to take back our power? I think a five-year sunset is, a, you know, and I don't mean to be mean, but it's essentially nothing. I mean, we've had millions of people die in five-year wars before. So I think it's, it's virtually meaningless. As far as the geographic limit on there, also virtually meaningless. If you look at associated forces, uh, part of or substantially supports al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or the Islamic State. Well, just the Islamic State's in 32 countries right now. I mean, you add in Taliban and you add in al-Qaeda, we're probably at least 50 or 60 countries. I'm not voting to war, go to war in 50 or 60 countries. Uh, that, so or if we're going to limit something, let's have a debate. If we're going to just simply pass something to say we pass something, but it's not limiting... I mean, one of our testimonies today says basically, well, you got all the Article II, and it'd just be nice. Kind of just be nice to have an AUMF. No, it wouldn't be nice. That's the Constitution. There's supposed to be no war without an AUMF. We have been illegally at war for a long time now. This is illegal war at this point. So when we look at this and we ask ourselves, what are we doing here? 
are we going to limit the power? Are we going to eliminate the duration of the war? Are we going to identify our enemy? But, uh, you know, the 9-11 proclamation, over and over again, people say associated forces as if that's in the document. That's not even in the document. The document, as Senator Cardin said, was very, very specific to 9-11. And we've had people just saying you can do anything you want now for 15 years. Then there's the practical question. The practical question is doing anything you want, killing every perceived enemy and every perceived leader or chieftain of five people in some misbegotten village, is it helping? Are we going to defeat an ideology by killing people? I was all for going after the people after 9-11. I would have voted for that. But I don't think war in Yemen is necessarily helping us. I don't think the man raid in Yemen made us safer. In fact, and I don't blame our soldiers for this. Look, I've got members of my family that are active duty. They do what they're told. They're brave young men and women. But, you know, when they killed four or five al-Qaeda people in a village, but we also kill their wives and children, and I'm not saying we intentionally do it. They're probably firing at us. They're in the middle of the firefight. But is it better? Do we have less terrorists now or more? We killed five. Well, what do you think happens in that village and surrounding that village for decades? For 100 years, they'll be talking about the time the Americans came and killed the people and killed our, killed our women and children. For 100 years, they're going to be talking about the Saudis dropping bombs on a funeral procession. That does not go away. These people remember the Battle of Karbala in 680 AD. They have long memories. One of my favorite quotes is, you have all the watches, but we have all the time. They're just going to be there, and they will wait us out. But we're not going to feed terrorism by having war in 60-some-odd countries and dropping drones on everybody that we think in a village is of a radical ideology. We have to defend ourselves. But we should be much more specific than this. And I just say now I won't vote for a, something that doesn't limit the president's power but simply gives a rubber stamp to what we're doing. And I would argue that our founding fathers did not agree with unlimited Article II authority. In fact, they thought Article II was virtually unlimited authority to execute an already initiated war. If you look at every founding father, whether it's Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, every one of them believed that the power to initiate war was Congress's. You could repel imminent attack, even against the Barbary pirates. It was an imminent attack and keeping war. But Jefferson worried that he needed to come back, and he actually did come back very quickly, within a few months, and they did vote on authorizing that activity. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about repelling attackers in the open seas, which I'm for. We're not talking about a limited thing. We're talking about worldwide war, and I think this authorization will not limit that in any way. I have no question. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Senator Paul, would you yield to a question? All right. And this, uh, th this is not a belligerent question, indeed. I think that uh, your your comments are exactly the kind of robust debate that Congress needs to do and the American people need to do and that the Founding Fathers intended when they put those provisions in there. And I, I'd ask if you would respond, and again, this is not a belligerent question, but there are people who argue uh, in response to your allegations that, well, what we're doing is illegal. They would argue that, well, look, Congress has to authorize military force. There's no exact way they have to do it, and one of the ways they can do it is by appropriating funds for it, thereby giving it the, uh, the okay. So there, there are people who make that argument. How, how would you respond to that? And again, this is not a belligerent question. It's, a, it's part no, of I appreciate the question. question. I, I, think it, I think it goes to the heart of the matter. There are two ways uh, you, can initiate, you can initiate war. You initiate it through an authorization and then through funding. You can just continue funding. That's one way of ending it, but you're trying then to end something if it was never initiated. So, for example, currently we have a war never initiated by Congress, and you would be trying to end it by funding. I would argue that practically 
it's very difficult to stop funding because the argument will be, you know, like I say, I've got active duty, you know, I have African members of my family over there, do I want to stop funding them in the middle of their, their battle? So it is much more difficult that way, but I think the debate, I think was intended to be at the beginning before we begin funding a war. And even during Vietnam, the most uh, uh, acrimonious our country has probably been in, in terms of war other than the Civil War, um, I think in the end we, we very, I think in the very end we still didn't even defund it. We might have defunded it after people had left Vietnam, but we never uh, voted defund even a very unpopular war. So pra for practical purposes, I would say, and for constitutional purposes, our job is before we get to the funding part. Thank you, Senator Paul. Senator Kane, you've been a real leader on this issue. Thank you. The floor is yours. Thanks to all my colleagues, and I really appreciate the chair and ranking doing this hearing. I so appreciate uh, working together with Senator Flake, Senator Young, your efforts, and to our witnesses. Um, this is an obsession. I, I represent the state that is most connected to the U.S. military. I have a child who's a Marine infantry officer. It's an obsession of mine. And I think this is really about lessons learned. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what this bill does, and I have one question for you. Lessons learned after 16 years. If we can't learn some things after 16 years of war, shame on us. We ought to be able to learn some things. And I've learned some things, too. This is the third AOMF I've introduced. One on my own in September of 2014, right after the President Obama decided to go on offense against ISIS. One with Senator Flake in the summer of 2015, and then this is number three. One of the things I've learned is it's hard to craft an authorization against non-state actors. It's one thing to have an authorization or declaration of war against a nation. Non-state actors, which we're going to be living with for a very long time, pose some additional challenges. But it's very important that we do it. And while you have some points of disagreement, I applaud the fact that you agree on more than you disagree, but you especially agree that it's time for Congress to act. Um, what does the Flake-Kane bill do? And there's one area where Senator Paul was inaccurate. We try to fix three problems with the existing, essentially limitless status quo. First, we try to fix who are we fighting against by naming groups, specific groups, not perpetrators of an attack, specific groups. Uh, we try to fix the who are we fighting against problem by fixing the associated force definition. The associated force definition, as Senator Paul mentioned, was not contained in the original authorization. We do put an associated force definition in ours, and it's got two components, not just one. To be an associated force, you have to be connected with al-Qaeda, ISIS, or Taliban, but you also have to be engaged in hostilities against the United States. So it doesn't authorize anybody connected to the Taliban, we're going to go after them anywhere. But if they're engaged in hostilities against the United States, that's a second factor to the associated force definition. We try to tighten up the definition of who we're fighting against. And we additionally have a listing uh, process where the president actually lists those groups that have to meet both criteria. And if Congress believes that he's listed a group that actually doesn't meet criteria. We have a resolution of disapproval process to strip a group away. That's the first issue we try to fix. Who are we fighting against? Second issue we try to fix is where are we fighting? Um, the 2001 authorization had no geographic limit. This one allows action to take place in the current handful of nations where we're engaging in activities against the Taliban, ISIS, or al-Qaeda. And then it allows a similar listing process if the president believes we need to take action against those groups or that tight definition of associated forces elsewhere, he can come forward with an additional geographic limitation and must to take action there. But again, Congress has the ability through a resolution of disapproval to, to, to deny that if we think that's an unnecessary stretch. And the third problem we try to fix is how long will we fight? 
Um, 16 years in, uh, we've learned something, and we've learned about sort of zombie authorizations that can go on into perpetuity. And so I wish we had a clause other, or a phrase other than sunset clause, but what we've done is we've, we've put in a mandatory review at five years, which is actually 21 years if you count the first 16 years of this. So at 21 years, we would have a, a review to determine whether we needed to go forward. And Senator Flake and I have put a process in that gives it expedited consideration, but under normal voting procedure. So it would take the 60 vote threshold, et cetera, in the Senate to continue beyond. These are three problems that exist. These are three things that I think we should have learned from and areas that we address. And other issues, um, Senator Young raises a good issue, and both of you do too, about detention. We didn't address that. And that's why robust discussion and debate and amendments are going to be necessary in the committee. Um, can, to conclude and ask you one question, it's time to do this. Um, it's a new administration. That's always a good time to do this. And we have both the Secretary of Defense and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who as recently as 10 days ago testified before the Armed Services Committee and said, we should do this. These are President Trump's appointees. General Dunford reappointed by President Trump. Our military leadership is telling Congress we should. it's time to do it. You each said things that you think are important. Um, you didn't say this, and I want to ask you if you think this is important. How important is it that we do this in a bipartisan way as opposed to a partisan vote? Senator, one, thank you. I think the – Senator Paul's not here anymore, but I think actually – your bill would place the, the limitations. You can argue about exactly how the limitations ought to be done, but instead of having a, a, a very broad authorization, this allows certain limits to be placed on it to actually address his concerns, and I think you, know, you have raised important points. Actually, on detention, although I know different groups raise concerns about legislating that, I actually see that as an opportunity to both authorize detention but put in safeguards so that you make sure you're actually safe, ensuring that the right people are detained and, and for no longer than is necessary, so that's a place to put in safeguards. On your question, I think it's very important to do this in a bipartisan way. You know, I come away from this hearing, a hearing agreement largely on the need for a new authorization. I am convinced that members can work out these details. They're not that far apart. They're important points, but we ought to be able to get that language, uh, and I'm, I'm convinced that this can get, can get done and should be done in a bipartisan way, and thank you for your leadership with Senator Flake in doing it that way, at least from the perspective of one lawyer. I would just add I completely agree with everything Mr. Bellinger said, and, uh, you know, this is not a partisan issue. There is, as I said in my opening comments, broad bipartisan support um, beyond Congress as well, from the human rights community to the military community. Uh, and this is about the role of Congress. This is about the fundamentals of our democracy. It doesn't get more fundamental than this question of the role of Congress in the use of force. Thank you. I find myself by myself um, and unprepared. Let me ask you this. If you were, uh, John, we were um, talking about the fact you had written um, the AUMF back in 2001. Um, it's obviously had some, it's been very durable. But if you, were gonna, if you were going to start from scratch, I know that Flake and Kane have done great work and we appreciate that and we've had numbers of iterations. Um, what are some of the, and I know you've been asked this in different ways, but if you were starting from scratch, um, what, what, would, what would be some of the attributes that uh, don't exist in this one or do exist with, don't, don't exist that you would add or do exist that you would change? 
Well, you give me too much credit, Senator. I won't say I drafted the 2001 AUMF. I was the legal advisor at the National Security Council when it was drafted. So the pointed end to the spear were the White House uh, Yeah, if uh, I remember lawyers. there's some grammatical errors, and you don't want to claim Yeah, those. exactly so, so, sir. In those 60 words. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but I was there when it was drafted, was consulted on it. Uh, uh, and, of course, it was drafted very quickly in just a couple of days after 9-11 when the Pentagon was actually still smoldering. Um, but you know, I do think now, if one were starting from scratch, one, we have new groups that didn't exist at the time, uh, and so it is important to... No, I'm talking about currently. Currently. Currently, yes. The but current if, AUMF. If, if we were... The one that we're actually, or the, the one that has been proposed by... Oh, Canadian the uh, Cane Flake? Yeah. Uh, I, I would say two things. One, uh, the... Uh, the associated force uh, definition is too narrow for me. I'd, I'd l at least like to hear from Senators Flake and Kane why they said that for a group to be associated, it literally has to be part of al-Qaeda or, or ISIS. There certainly seem to be some groups that are co-belligerents fighting along with al-Qaeda or ISIS but are not part of al-Qaeda. So I'm sure they had a reason for drafting it that way, but that did strike me as too tight. I, I certainly agree, understand the concerns that you don't want to go too broadly to say anything that is associated, meaning that they met in the street sometime or said something nice. That's too broad. But the way it's currently drafted, part of al-Qaeda or part of ISIS seems to be, to be too narrow. Uh, the, I would add some uh, detention provisions, ideally, uh, but the affirmative power to detain, I would certainly balance with certain safeguards. It's a two-edged sword. If we are, Congress is authorizing the detention of people under the laws of war, there ought to be protections to make sure that the people who are detained are the right people and for no longer than is necessary. I defer to you all on the, the disapproval provisions. Uh, I know Senators uh, Flake and Kane worked very hard on those. It's a lot of lines and a lot of pages. It's quite complicated. Uh, uh, let me let me hone in on that just one moment. There's the we've addressed numbers of issues, for instance, in the Russia sanctions bill last week and on the Iran sanctions bill that actually work in exactly the opposite way. In their particular situation, they sunset and put an expedited procedure in place to extend it. The opposite way of doing that is for Congress to at any time have the ability to end it through a vote. And in many ways, it would be safer. Uh, it would keep us from being in a situation where we end up with no authorization uh, to deal with what's happening around the world. Can you give any input there as to which you think is a better place for us to be, and actually both of you, where instead of having a hard deadline and an expedited procedure and people know that that's coming and people around the world wonder whether we're going to continue on, instead of having that, have just the reverse of that where Congress uh, can at any time end it, and Congress could at any time state that uh, we don't want to be involved in a certain country with a certain group. Well, Senator, I think that's an excellent question. It gets to really to my point about the sunset as to whether my legal preference would be uh, to not have a sunset because then it ends, and, and if you are the military, to know that your authority ends is at least problematic. So I would rather have a review provision after a certain period of time rather than to know that it is going to end. But politically, I really just have to defer to you all. If it is better to have it end and then reauthorize, I can understand that. But preferably as a legal matter and you're in the military, you don't want to 
know at least now that your legal authority is going to go up in smoke uh, and just hope that members of Congress will reauthorize it after a couple of years. But I, I, I do understand the politics of this. In 20 seconds, Dr. Hicks. The Department of Defense would love it if it had a five-year budget authorization, too. I, I think it's very reasonable to put a sunset on the authorization um, here. And I do think, as Senator Kane was saying, it creates a, an incentive structure that drives Congress to take on its role in the conversation. I don't think it's unduly burdensome to the military commander. Five years is, is essentially a lifetime in how they think about their authorities. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Dr. Hicks, in your testimony, you say it is appropriate for a new AUMF to create a most stringent notification requirement for the President's use of ground forces in combating terrorist groups and recommend language included in H.J. Res. 100 that gives the President expansive authority to send our servicemen and women into combat as long as he notifies Congress as soon as possible. Uh, what is your perspective on whether we should include in a new AUMF a requirement that the President notify Congress within 48 hours after he substantially enlarges the level of U.S. armed forces in a foreign country where combat appears likely? I think the fundamental challenge for a new AUMF in all aspects is this balancing of ensuring the flexibility of the commander needs on the ground, the, the national command authority needs to authorize force, in defense of U.S. interests and the appropriate role of congressional oversight. I think that the, the bill put forward by um, Representative Schiff with regard to notification on ground force, uh, ground forces used in a combat role is an, is an example of an appropriate balance. It's a notification. It allows Congress to have the earliest possible opportunity to start to engage in the conversation over authorities upon which that is based over a discussion of uh, resources being expended, principles, uh, et cetera. Um, and it, but it also doesn't really create a burden for the commander. And I, so I think that's a reasonable way forward. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mr. Bellinger, the, the use of targeted uh, killings, most prominently using armed drones, is a form of um, use of armed force and ought to fall under the Congress's war powers. Mr. Bellinger, what is your perspective on the interplay between the multiple sources of authority for the government's targeted killing programs and congressional oversight of these operations under the War Powers Act? The uh, executive branch is carrying out, as I understand it, uh, uh, drone attacks, targeted killings uh, under a variety of different authorities. Some of them by the military or under the AUMF. Some of them may be under intelligence authorities. Uh, the conceivably under the president's uh, Article II authority, although I think most of it uh, is, is probably authorized by Congress. So uh, you suggest that we revise the War Powers Act. How would, in your view, a new authorization deal with this issue? What would be the recommendations you would make in terms of the, uh, well, the restrictions, the notification that would have to be given to Congress? Right. Uh, the... I don't know that they would, would address the drone issue. I think you mean more generally just... Right, well, yeah, the targeted yeah. killing issue, yeah. Uh, well, I know actually the War Powers Resolution changes that most people think are necessary would address the drone issue. They have more to do with the 60-day clock 
Okay, so you don't think it would have, and if we if we revise the War Powers Act, um, it wouldn't relate to the targeted killings uh, policy that we I mean, have? of course, you can revise it any way you want to revise no, I appreciate it. But I, 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 w I don't think I, I would, or I have heard anybody say that the War Powers Resolution flaws are uh, uh, things that really are related to drones. They are related more to the problem with the 60-day clock uh, and presidents stretching uh, their authority to avoid the 60-day clock in the War Powers Resolution. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I, I wanted to turn back to this question of the President's Article II authority in the context of a fairly extraordinary set of events that is playing out as we speak inside Syria. This morning we have notification through the press of the fifth direct confrontation between U.S. military forces inside Syria and Syrian, Syrian regime-affiliated forces, uh, none of which is authorized. Um, Secretary Tillerson stood before us and admitted as such that there is zero legal authority, not even through a perversion of the 2001 or 2003 AOMF, to begin military action against the Syrian regime. And yet it seems as if this isn't a series of one-off incidences. We now have five incidences in 45 days. And so um, I want to explore with you the limits of the president's Article II authority in the context not of the campaign against ISIS, but against a developing war between the United States and the Syrian regime uh, that may end up in a major shooting conflict um, that occupies all of our attention in the not-so-distant future. So two questions to, to both of you, two ways to view this. Um, first is the justification that we are engaged in self-defense. Um, there is a, I would imagine there is a limit to that argument. Just because the other guys shoot first doesn't mean that you don't need an authorization to continue to return fire. So we are now five engagements in to the argument of self-defense. How do we begin to parse when this is Article II authority and when the president needs an authorization? Simply because you're sitting in a conflict zone and somebody's shooting at you doesn't mean that you can engage in long-term hostilities without us. Second, the justification that has been used for at least one of these attacks on the Iranian-made drones is that it's in defense not of U.S. forces, but in defense of non-state actor forces that we are supporting on the ground. That seems clearer. I mean, that seems to me that there's no way that's in Article II authority. Um, and so I'd love for you to confirm whether my suspicions are right on the second count and to address the limits of Article II authority with respect to this justification of self-defense. Uh, well, we can divide this up, and I, I let me uh, agree with something Dr. Hicks said, I think, just before you came in, which is I think both of us would like to see clarity out of the administration about their legal position. And when I was legal advisor at the State Department, I mean, this was sort of my credo, is that you know, we ought to be, when the United States is doing edgy or controversial things legally, we ought to say why we're doing them. We, as the United States, believe in the rule of law. We believe that we are acting legally. We always try to do that. And if we are, we ought to say why. Others may not always agree, but we ought to say what we are doing. And when I was legal advisor, I tried very hard to explain <coughs> our actions, and I would like to see those same things here. I'd like to see clarification on the 
uh, strikes against the chemical weapons uh, uh, in response of a month or so ago, and now. Uh, like you, I, see, uh, I have a hard time seeing that Congress authorized the use of force against Syria in the 2001 AUMF, or that it authorized the use of force against Syrian aircraft because they were doing something to groups that we were supporting. Uh, I've not yet heard the administration's position, so I'd like to hear that, uh, but I don't really see how it can be justified under the 2001 AUMF because Syria is not one of the nations that committed the 9-11 attacks and it's not a co-belligerent with Al-Qaeda. So I assume, therefore, it must be under the President's Article II authority and there it would have to be under a national interest test and for us to know that, we really would have to know more about what was the national interest that the, uh, that the President saw. Finally, that's all a matter of domestic law. I, as the legal advisor of the State Department, also want to make sure that we are uh, acting consistent with international law. Uh, and so your points about self-defense, I think, are also important. We, were, we do not appear to be defending ourselves. We were defending someone else. But it's not clear, at least to me, until I learn more, that there was a, a collective right of self-defense. But this is why I think we'd like to hear more about the administration's justification. I agree with everything Mr. Bellinger said. I would very briefly add, my recollection is that in the 2014 consideration of an AUMF, Secretary Kerry was called before this committee. I think the same should be done now with Secretary Tillerson, broadly speaking on the legal basis for ongoing military operations to include, obviously, inside Syria. Uh, thank you. I, I think this question of Article 2 authority is really important. I, I'm not sure. National interest is very broad. Others would say it's imminent threat. Um, that's a really important distinction for us to consider moving forward. Well, on behalf of the committee today, we'll ask formally uh, what, th what authority they're relying upon for this, and it'll go out today. I will say, though, the dilemma we find is that uh, uh, just as some of the limitations you referred to earlier about no ground troops in countries, which, let's face it, is part of the Menendez effort in 2014, there were numbers of members uh, that wanted to limit our ability to have ground troops. And so what we've begun to do as a nation is we rely upon proxies. So we are, in fact, uh, the SDF is a group that we've armed, uh, that we've trained. And what's happened is the Assad regime and Russian uh, airplanes have come against them, the very group they're supporting. So, I mean, we can't have it both ways. I mean, if, we, if we're not willing ourselves to send ground troops in, if we're going to rely upon proxies, and we do that in many cases because they're indigenous and they can actually govern after the fact, we do have to somehow in an AUMF make accommodations for the fact that if they come under attack from others and we are giving them close air support or support of other kinds, We've got to figure out a way to address that. So, uh, and I'm more than willing for you to enter into this since no one else is here, but would you guys like to respond as to how we might write an AUMF that takes into account that to the extent we can, we're going to fight through proxies. They may come under threats. How do we deal with that? I'll take a first table. I think this is something that really we can do together as a policy matter and a legal matter. I mean, as a policy matter, you're absolutely right, Senator. I understand that if we're going to be supporting people in another country, uh, and then they get attacked, uh, we want to be able to provide them some support as a policy matter. Um, as a legal matter, though, it really is much harder in that uh, we do not, uh, uh, I think, under the AUMF or under international law, have uh, a right to be using force in another country 
that has not consented to the use of force if we are not defending ourselves, it's a right of self-defense against us, or defending collectively some other country. It's a, it's a stretch for me to see that we have a legal right either authorized by Congress under the 2001 AUMF or under international law to use force to defend a group that we are arming as a legal matter. But I, I certainly understand your point as sort of a policy or moral matter. This, we have to have a strategy. We have to understand what the goals are. And, and then we have to have a legal basis that supports that. I think we're completely disconnected, frankly, on all these elements. And I think that's been true for some time, um, to, be, to be somewhat fair to the administration. But uh, I just want to foot stomp the point that Mr. Bellinger made on international law. There are, there, there, you know, we, we, are, we are short, if you will, all around. There isn't a UN resolution. Um, this isn't an ally to whom we have a treaty obligation. There, there, we don't have it covered under the AUMF. Uh, if we had a sense of the policy and strategy that we as a nation want to pursue, we could create for ourselves a legal basis. But I think we're operating in a void of both strategy, policy, and, and then, of course, the legal basis. So both of you are going to be relied upon in the, in the upcoming weeks uh, for input. I know that we're going to need to have uh, likely another hearing because of all that's occurred this morning. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and call this to a close. If you could, uh, the record be open until the close of business on Thursday. Um, I know you have other jobs, but to the extent you could answer fairly promptly, we're actually going to be engaging uh, you very directly uh, from the committee at our level um, today. But uh, we thank you both for being here. I think this has been uh, very, very helpful. Um, and with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Okay. <laughs>